Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. about the pro-life movement goes something like this. Pro-lifers care so much about babies before they are born, but not much after. The thing about canards is that by definition, they are not true. Pro-lifers also work hard to protect the lives of born people, sometimes in coalition with activists and organizations that do not oppose abortion, ranging from crisis pregnancy centers to the fight against assisted suicide and opposing the dehydration of cognitively disabled patients like Terry Schiavo. Most pro-life organizations also work against so-called futile care hospital protocols, F-U-T-I-L-E. Futile care, also known as medical futility and inappropriate care, is a utilitarian bioethical policy that allows doctors to remove wanted, and I emphasize wanted, life-sustaining treatment based on the doctor's own beliefs about suffering, the value of life, and the cost of care. Texas is a pro-life state, yet it has the most egregious law in the nation allowing doctors to impose futile care treatment cutoffs on unwilling patients and their families. Texas Right to Life has been striving for many years to repeal this law legislatively, so far with only partial success. Full disclosure, I have testified several times in the Texas legislature in support of this effort. But now the organization has brought a lawsuit that may bring about the demise of feudal care in Texas and could point the way forward in other states to end this form of ad hoc health care rationing. My guest today is leading this effort in the trenches. East Texas native and attorney Emily Cook has devoted herself to the pro-life movement since 2007 when she volunteered with the local crisis pregnancy center. A graduate of Stephen F. Austin, Texas State University and Baylor University Law School, Emily has worked numerous legislative sessions on behalf of Texas Right to Life and currently serves as the organization's general counsel, for which she focuses on nonprofit corporate governance law, campaign finance law, and patient advocacy issues. Emily, welcome to Humanize. Thank you, Wesley. Thank you very much for having us. You have dedicated your entire career to pro-life work. What attracted you to the cause? On the issue of abortion, what attracted me um, was I was in high school. And frankly, I had two friends who um, got pregnant and one of them had an abortion and the other didn't. And I was just very um, struck by that. Um, 
of that eye. There was one person here with a, with a baby and the other person should have had a baby too. And so that kind of um, started my uh, journey into what is abortion. Um, and then the more I found out, uh, I just thought this was a terrible injustice. Like there's no way this, this could be possible. And I really felt led to um, help uh, parenting, pregnant and parenting students on my college campus, which is how I got involved with uh, the the Pregnancy Resource Center in Nacogdoches, and then ultimately through Texas Right to Life. And I came to Texas Right to Life, and, and, and we kind of joke about it. Um, you know, I, I just wanted to save babies. You know, I'm here because I wanted to save babies. And then now, so much of my my work is com comprised of protecting vulnerable patients and, and people who have a disability or and, and the elderly. And it is because when we, when we in the pro-life world, um, you very quickly realize that there's an entire segment of population who are being targeted uh, on this devaluation of life, just like the unborn babies are being targeted through abortion. I think it's important. Um, I've often, uh, in speaking to pro-life groups, sometimes criticized pro-life organizations for not caring enough about uh, protecting such people I, I infamously, perhaps, or famously, whatever, once uh, said uh, to National Right to Life Convention, the first one I ever spoke at about assisted suicide, that if if you didn't care about as much about the uh, the gay person dying of AIDS or the elderly woman in the uh, nursing home, uh, call yourself pro-cute, because it's all about the same thing, protecting human life. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. And we're seeing this um, really we are, we're, we're seeing where we're winning on the abortion front. Um, we're, you know, it's taken us 30, 35, 40 years to really drive um, to where the pro-life community is, is, is winning um, on abortion. Uh, but in our hospitals and in the delivery of health care, we are killing people um, based on subjective quality of life decisions that are made by other people that are not made by ourselves or made by our spouses or our children, um, but by people we've never met before. And it, it's very, very scary, but it's very real. That's the, that's the feudal care issue. And I, I'm going to get into that really quickly, but I'm also interested in having our listeners get to know you a bit as a human being. So you, you become, I, I find it very interesting. You, you got attracted to the to the cause of pro-life because of an, a personal experience with friends where one friend had an abortion and the other friend had a baby and you thought, oh my gosh, uh, there's something wrong with a baby who should be here not being here, which was your conscience uh, speaking to you as I understood what you said. And then you go to college and then you decide to go to law school and you've been applying your uh, pro-life uh, advocacy as a lawyer. What, what attracted you to that aspect of of career, in other words, becoming a lawyer. Well, from a from a young age, um, I was always reading stories, uh, books about kings and queens and presidents, and I was the nerdy kid. Um, I've loved love government and uh, just meshing the two of, of loving government and uh, being being influential in how public policy gets changed. Um, you look at you look at um, those influential founding fathers and um, and different politicians and, and the law was their way to um, uh, their way to get there. So that was kind of what I've always wanted to be an attorney. But when my pro-life convictions really kicked in, um, I especially after interning or working for Texas Right to Life in the legislative session, between undergrad and um, law school, uh, in, in between those two, I graduated a little early, so I had some time um, 
being immersed in the legislative arena, I very quickly realized um, how much good um, an attorney can do in achieving public policy goals. And so I knew that I could never uh, just just the sanctity of innocent human life and, and being a voice for people who cannot speak for themselves was so uh, just so heavy on my heart that I knew whatever direction I took um, with my law degree, I would never stray away from um, using my law license to do good. And when I came to Texas Rights Life and we discover, you know, I, I, I discovered just um that there was, there was an absence of lawyers fighting uh, this euthanasia battle, especially here in the state of Texas. Um, I knew that we could do, we could do some really, really good work um, at being a voice for these patients um, in, in, in the hospital setting and filing lawsuits against uh, the laws that threaten their rights. That, that touches me a bit because I'm a lawyer too, as you know, and although I'm not practicing anymore, um, I got in it for idealistic reasons, and and the reasons I got into it had didn't have anything to do with these issues, but wanting to uh, improve a certain lie. I wanted to be a public defender when I started, yeah. for the same kind of idealistic reason. I wanted people who were kind of defenseless and vulnerable to have a, a defense because I thought it was important. John Adams had been a hero of mine. Ralph Nader had been a hero of mine, uh, and sounds like you uh, had very uh, similar idealistic. Um, aspirations. The interesting thing for me is <laughs> practicing law beat it out of me, but it doesn't seem to have beat it out of you. Well, I'm still, I, I'm, I've only been practicing, I think I'm going on my eighth year right now. So I'm still kind of, um, still, we'll, we'll see, maybe ask me in another eight or 10 years. We'll <laughs> uh, Texas is a pro-life state. Now let's focus on this feudal care issue. Texas is a pro-life state, but it has the most egregious feudal care law in the country, which, which is really surprising because it was signed by Governor George W. Bush before he was president. Describe the law and how it came into being. Sure. So the the Texas law there there are actually there's two ways under Texas law um, which healthcare decisions can be taken away. So uh, healthcare decisions in regards to life sustaining treatment. And what that means is that um, there are situations the law allows for a hospital ethics committee to uh, disregard what your surrogate's decision making, which is surrogate medical power of attorney, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your adult children or someone else that you've appointed um, to take that decision making away and essentially uh, allow the hospital to decide, hey, we're going to stop treating you. And people are, and you can't do anything about it. Um, people are really shocked when they learn that um, your wishes don't have to be respected under the law. Um, they are just completely um, aghast when they are faced with this situation that actually, no, you don't hold all the cards. The hospital holds the cards. State law allows them to pull the plug to remove dialysis, to remove your food and water um, without your surrogates or yourselves, without your consent. And so in 1990, it was about 1999 um, when the law was signed, but the but two years before that in the legislative session in 97, the law first started um, start making its way through the legislative, uh, the, the legislative arena. And it was really, Texas was at that time, for some reason, I, I wasn't around then, but um, the Physician Assisted Suicide Network, they were trying to make euthanasia um, 
call it by something else, putting footholds into uh, the delivery of our healthcare system to make euthanasia eventually more acceptable. And the Texas law is one way that they were trying to uh, do one of those bite-sized steps where here you've got an issue with life-sustaining treatment and we're going to shift that decision-making authority and power from the family and their patient, the patient and their family over to um, the hospital and let me, let me interrupt you for just a second. Sure. People have the right to say no to unwanted medical treatment. So sure. if, and, and of course you, you all support that people making Absolutely. their own decisions. Right. And so if somebody says, well, look, I don't want a respirator. They don't have to have a respirator. If they say, I don't want kidney dialysis, they don't have to have kidney dialysis. And, and there's no argument there. In bioethics, uh, they've always described this as patient autonomy, which it is part of patient autonomy. Um, and, and way back before you were born, there was a time when people actually were hooked up to machines against their will. And one of the, I, I think few, but one of the real achievements of the bioethics movement, and it wasn't pursued by utilitarians, but actually a Christian bioethicist named Paul Ramsey, is they were able to say, no, that's, that's not the way you treat people. You allow people to make those decisions for themselves. But what's happened here is Autonomy is fine in, in these utilitarian bioethical views when you're saying, I don't want treatment with the prognosis of probable death. But when you say, I do want treatment, I do want to continue to fight, I do want that respirator, I do want the dialysis, and the doctor or the bioethics committee thinks, well, your life isn't worth giving that to, we're going to say autonomy has its limits and we're going to decide. Is that what's happening here? Absolutely. And in Texas, you have a state law that sanctions that behavior, making it even that more difficult to challenge. And as I recall, um, at the time, the the uh, a bunch of Houston hospitals that actually put together a protocol, a fetal care protocol, that they were going to honor each other's uh, protocol and only allow three days, meaning once a decision is made to cut a patient off from care, they were going to allow three days for the patient or family to find another hospital to provide that treatment. Of course, they were going to honor each other's feudal care decision, so that would be almost impossible, at least in Houston. Mm -hmm. and, as, and I wasn't part of this, but as I understand, the reason the law was passed is that 10 days was, was then given for that process. And the belief at that time was, well, surely we'll be able to find a a good hospital for the patient within 10 days. And so even Texas Right to Life signed off on the bill at that time. Is that right? We signed off on um, putting 10 days in there. Um, we still had problems with the bill, but that was the best that we could do. Our One of the reasons our lobbying power back then was nothing compared to what it is today. Um, but, you know, we had, we had urged the governor in 97 not to, to, uh, I mean, to veto the law the first time because it was passed originally without any days, period. I and, see. Um, um, and then come back the next legislative session and, and, and to get 10 days. And one of the reasons um, people that were involved in that, they said they, they, they were given a lot, you know, we were given a lot of ass assurances that there would be good faith efforts to transfer um, that this happens all the 10 days is, is plenty of time. And we very quickly, by the time the 2001 session rolled around, we found out that it was very clear that that the stakeholders had lied to uh, the pro-life community on that front. Um, and especially you mentioned kind of the handshake deal between hospitals, and we still see that today. Um, the, there's just kind of this false promise of, of 
you know, okay, family, well, if you find, this sounds, re, this sounds reassuring on its face. If you can find someone else to take them, we will do everything we can to, t- to transfer them. Okay. That's not how it works in the real world. First of all, you're right. They have, the hospitals all have this handshake agreement that they're not going to take each other's uh, feudal care patients or poor prognosis patients. And then also, a random person, a random family member can't just call up a hospital admissions line and say, hey, I ha- you know, will you take my dad? That's not that's not how those kind of ICU to ICU transfers work. The hospitals know this. But when you have a countdown, like in the text, you know, the 10 day law, you know, the Texas families, you know, they they kind of it's until maybe day six or day seven when they finally realize, hey, this isn't working like they told me to. What What's wrong? And by that time. You know, the clocks. Yeah, and you need, you need the hospital's cooperation. Mm-hmm. Let, let's uh, tell listeners how this actually works. Sure. There's a patient in the ICU. Perhaps the patient has an advanced directive saying, I want this kind of treatment. Perhaps the surrogate, may, often a family member, will mm-hmm. say, you know what? Um, we want him to continue with this, uh, l- let's say, a respirator. I'll just use that as an example. And the doctor is looking and saying, well, you know what? I don't think this patient's ever going to get better. And even if the patient does, we don't think the quality of life is good. And and my values say I should not provide this treatment because it's causing too much suffering. And you have a family dispute with or surrogate dispute with the doctor. At that point under the law, the doctor can say, well, since we can't reach an agreement, I'm calling a bioethics committee meeting. Is that right? Yes. And the statute um, requires that the family be provided 48 hours notice of that meeting, uh, and uh, and it, that notice can be verbal, doesn't have to be written. So that causes a problem because family, it's pitched to families as, hey, we're going to have a meeting of the of uh, uh, of his care team. We're gonna, can you meet with some doctors tomorrow? It can also be waived by verbal verbally a shorter time frame from 48 hours. So it often is is hey a nurse coming in saying hey or maybe usually the chaplain um, we're going to have a meeting with the with the ethics committee and you know can you can you guys meet with them when it's to talk about you know your brother's care tomorrow morning um, and and they don't understand the families don't understand that this particular meeting is different than other family care team meetings that they might have had in the past because this particular um, is is the trigger for a, stat, a statutory chain of events that results in their decision-making authority being taken away. Right. So normally with a bioethics committee, most hospitals have them. They, they mm-hmm. engage in a mediating kind of role, which I think is a proper role for a bioethics committee, where they work in these kind of sometimes intractable cases. And doctors are often in good faith and thinking this is not good for the patient. And the family saying, well, this is what he would want, or this is what grandma would want, or we think it's the best. Um, usually they'll work to try to reach an accommodation and, mm-hmm. and would be a voluntary accommodation. Right. But in this circumstance, this, what would normally be a mediating kind of committee is actually turned into a quasi judicial committee with decision-making power. Is that right? It is the decision of the um, ethics committee. Sometimes they call them a recommendation. It's not a recommendation. Whatever the ethics committee decides is binding. And if followed through, aka the removal of the treatment that is being requested by the family but being denied by the the uh, physician, physician, uh, if the ethics committee says, "Hey, we agree with the uh, physician, not that we should not that we should withdraw draw this treatment," um, then 
that results in a binding decision that then also prevents the family uh, from suing the hospital or the physicians civilly, criminally, um, or administrative liability in front of their licensing authorities. It, it, it grants the doctors and the hospitals immunity for that, for making that life ending decision against the wishes of the surrogate. And, you, and if they find another doctor, the hospital doesn't have to give that doctor the right to actually make that decision, correct? Within the hospital. Right. So it, it, it is institutionally specific. Um, and so it, it's still sitting there. Ethics Committee, I've got a, I've got a, a case right now where the, the Ethics Committee decision is still there on the table. Um, they have decided not to... Uh, comply right now, not to remove life support since Texas Right to Life is involved, but that decision is still out there and um, can be reactivated just immediately. We could be back on day nine today just by the ethics committee deciding, hey, or the hospital physician deciding, yeah, we're going to do this now. Um, And so it's really... um, it, it results in some in some crazy uh, crazy issues going on. But one thing that's important to note is that all of the treatment that is in front of the ethics committee um, under the statute, it is treatment that is already being provided to the patient. It's right. not covering treatment that you know you're not asking for them to affirmatively do something. It is treatment that's already occurring and which is already working. That's an important point. We're not talking about removing treatment that is physiologically futile, as it is sometimes called. It is not talking for saying just a wild, crazy example. You know, I, I've uh, got an earache, so take out my appendix. Well, that's ridiculous because physiologically that would have nothing to do with it. We are talking when we're talking about futile care about removing treatment, not because it does not work, but because it does work. Mm-hmm. That the, the point of the treatment is to maintain the life of the patient. And that is the benefit that the doctor or the bioethics committee doesn't think is worth pursuing, but the patient does. Have I got that right? Yes, sir, you do. It is the continuing, the patient continuing to live, which is the problem in the physician's eyes. And also as something to point out to um, your viewers, that we're not talking about patients who have been um, diagnosed or declared brain dead, that they can definitely have their life sustaining treatment removed, but that's pursuant to a different set of laws in Texas. The 10 day law um, assumes that a patient still, uh, that a patient has not been diagnosed or declared brain uh, of, of having suffered brain death. And so that's an important distinction to make because people think that the 10 day law only applies to brain death situ- scenarios. And that is not true. Right. Brain death is legally dead. What you're talking about with feudal care are people who are unquestionably legally alive. Absolutely. And some of whom uh, are unconscious, but some of whom are not unconscious necessarily. For example, Chris Dunn. Mm-hmm. Chris Dunn was a uh, was a, a man in the intensive care unit who was conscious and able to communicate. He didn't talk, but he was able to nod his head and shake his head and this kind of thing. And he was asked specifically, as I recall, do you want to continue with this uh, intensive care? And he said, yes. Is that right? Uh, Yes, it is. Absolutely. He nodded his head. Yes. He put his hands into a praying position like he was praying to live. And his lawyers asked, Chris, are you praying to live? And he shook his head. Yes. Same thing with Carolyn Jones. Viewers can go look at Carolyn Jones um, on Texas Texas Rights Life website. Um, But she was very conscious. She was following you around the room. And this was an egregious example also of where we're not just, the law doesn't just apply to um, 
ventilator support. Right. It applies to other types of life-sustaining treatment, including dialysis. And so when the hospital removed her, uh, Carolyn's uh, trait, her, her uh, ventilator support, she continued to breathe on her own for several days. So because she didn't die, how else were they going to kill her? They were withholding her dialysis treatment. She'd been on a, she had been dialysis um, on an outpatient basis for many years before she was had a stroke, which is what ended her up in the ICU. But the dialysis was never a you know a problem. But they she didn't die because of removing her ventilator. So they were going to kill her through kidney failure. And um, remarkably, uh, we were able to uh, hire a private ambulance system uh, ambulance service discharge her what's called AMA against medical advice, ironically, take her to another facility down the road um, where EMTALA federal law kicks in where an emergency room has to stabilize you, provide her a dialysis treatment. And Carolyn lived mm, six, seven more months, never going back on with ventilator support or or anything until she died naturally. Which shows that doctors, uh, you know, people don't die by the numbers. Sometimes doctors are mistaken. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, they thought that she was going to die when the ventilator was removed and she didn't. And yet Mm -hmm. that wasn't satisfactory to them. This is a, this is an arrogance and an imposition. And I, and I think it's important to get into the human realm here because you're dealing with a family in crisis. Mm-hmm. They have a, a loved one who's desperately ill. There's no question that these people are desperately ill. And rather than being able to focus on being with their loved one, caring for their loved one, loving their loved one, they have to go scrambling to try to find uh, other sources of care and fight with the medical team. That's just got to be an incredible burden on these people. It is. And I will give you another example. We had a case this past fall, so 2020, um, 2021 fall. Uh, it was over Labor Day weekend, actually. And it was a hospital in Beaumont, and they started the 10 days on this patient. Well, this patient ended up, um, so the, the family gets, you know, they call Texas Rights Life. We get involved over the Labor Day weekend. I convinced the hospital council to um, stop the 10-day countdown. You know, that was kind of like Friday, Saturday of Labor Day. And he ended up passing away without removal of, of any life-sustaining treatment. He passed away naturally the next midweek, which would have been within their 10-day, the 10-day um, time frame. And so it's like why they just went spent three days, this family, frantically fighting with the hospital, um, not at the bedside of their loved one when he had merely days left to live, and trying to seek legal counsel in a first situation where, you know, he he was passed in the stages of dying. He was about to pass away. I mean, it was completely, um, it, it, it was not necessary. It, it was absolutely not necessary. And they lost valuable time with their loved one because of the hospital's um, imposition of the 10-day law. I think it's important also to understand that this is not a medical decision taking away the medical treatment because it's not physiologically futile. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a value judgment. Mm-hmm. And when we're, it comes to value judgments, the question is whose value should apply the doctor's view of this patient and the doctors and the bioethics committees will essentially be strangers or the patient through his his or her own advanced directive or family members who know the patient and know that patient's values very well. And so uh, the idea that, well, the doctors decided, well, that's, this is not a decision that the doctor should be making. Right. It, uh, are they, their role is in, a, in an advisory 
capacity um, with the family. And you even we even see um, this terminology trying to trying to, from from the medical lobby trying to say, uh, well, it should be shared decision making. No, it should not be shared decision making. It is it the decision rests with the surrogate, rests with the family, and not we're not we're not doing that. You're in an advisory capacity that that. You know, a family, if your relationship, the communications are good, families are going to take that into consideration. They want to know what their doctors and their care team say. But when you get to this, but when you get to this point where the law allows for that hospital setting, uh, that hospital ethics committee and physician to usurp that decision making authority, you've now got a conflict and you've put people who should be on the same team in an adversarial context. Communication breaks down. It's not good for the family. It's not good for the staff. It's not good for. for the patient and really makes an unworkable situation. Right. If you lose trust, uh, that it, the whole situation becomes almost untenable. Um, and it's all, one thing to point out, they, you know, when we talk about ventilator support, many people um, have this mistaken mistaken idea, idea, idea that once you're on a ventilator, uh, that you'll, you'll be that way forever. And that's not true. Um, there's there's a great example that we had just this past year web uh, videos up on our um, website of, of a young man or uh, well, middle-aged man named Jose and he found himself in, um, in Abilene or Amarillo I think it's Abilene I have to get a little I'd have to look that back up but he um, had COVID and so he had was in the hospital for several months on ventilator support they started the 10 days on him we got it stopped the 10 days stopped and um, he went home. I mean, was it, you know, four or five months of recovery? Yes, it was. But he was not at the end of his life. You can see a video on our website where he is talking and walking again and, and shooting a video talking about his experience. And if if there hadn't been intervention, um, they would have pulled the plug on him. He would have died. Absolutely. The man who is alive today, mm-hmm. talking, mm-hmm. making that video would be dead today if the doctors had been able to impose their value system on the family. Absolutely. And the only reason he's not dead today is because lawyers like you, perhaps you, uh, but Texas right to life engaged this and said, we're going to sue and it stopped the 10 days. Is that correct? It did. Yeah. I I mean, that's absolutely right. The threat of of suing is, is, uh, because we've done it several times in the Chris Dunn lawsuit, Chris Dunn case we sued. And in the current Tinsley Lewis case out of cook children's um, I've, we have 30 page TROs ready to go that our team is very good at putting in the facts and sending them to counsel and gets that to stop. But it is um, currently the threat of lawsuits. And if people don't contact saving. Texas Right to Life or a lawyer, it could be that they'll never actually prevail in these circumstances. I want to get into the Tinsley Lewis case because I think it's really important. But before we do, I've noticed that um, it seems to me that feudal care is a, is a form of discrimination particularly against people with disabilities and the elderly. And I've noticed an awful lot of patients of color. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think that those are relevant factors in determining for doctors to determine, you know, who do we want to impose this on and who do we not? I do. Um, And I can only say that because I can only say through our own experiences, there's no statewide reporting. So the legislature, um, including the Texas Medical Association, Texas Catholic Conference of Bishops, just other um, organizations have uh, thwarted attempts to get statewide reporting to require the hospitals um, to submit how many times that they do this. And what those demographics are. So we do our own internal reporting. We have no idea if 
all of the cases in Texas come through Texas Right to Life's doors or if just a fraction, we don't know. But our own internal uh, reporting shows that um, about 50% of our total cases go are, are actually uh, dealing with DFW, Dallas, Fort Worth, Metroplex, those kind of um, hospitals in that region. So they're very overrepresented. And then additionally, yes, African and Hispanic, uh, African American, Hispanic uh, population, absolutely. You just told me something I wasn't aware of that there is no statistical reporting required. Um, and, and since these, um, these uh, hospital ethics committees happen behind closed doors, uh, and there's no written record kept, correct? Of what was said? Um, well, there might be, but we don't know until you sue and go into discovery. I had a very crazy case recently where um, the fam- the hospital actually had the family sign a quote-unquote confidentiality agreement um, saying that they could not say anything about what happened in the ethics committee meeting. Which so, that- oh, Wait a minute. They had to sign a non-disclosure agreement mm-hmm. to participate in an ethics committee meeting that is required by law on a 10-day call? Yep, they did. And so it scared the family so much that they waited until day eight of the 10-day countdown to find, to, to seek out help. That's mm-hmm. just remarkable. This is mm-hmm. being, this is a process that involves life and death and is being kept intentionally opaque. Yep. And, and the injustice of that is beyond me. And which, which brings up me to another question You'd think that the Catholic Healthcare Association and the Catholic bishops in Texas would be against feudal care, but much to my surprise, in Texas, they're for it. Do you understand what's going on there? And 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 of course, that has made it harder to repeal the law. I mean, I am personally not Catholic, um, but I just know the dynamics um, in that we face in the legislature. And yes, it is because it's a it mirror it. it muddies up the water about what is the pro-life position. Uh, Because when you do think about, you know, who's pro-life, the Catholic community, it comes to mind, if not the first thing that comes to your mind. And so it makes pro-lifers who don't understand the issue hesitant. um, Particularly cowardly legislators. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. Um, So it, 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 it muddies the water as to, um, what is what is actually going on and what, what is the pro-life position. But Texas Rights Life is the only advocacy organization who's actually um, helping patients, walking alongside patients. We're not talking about some, sure, what, you know, what we have, uh, our legislative director, John Siegel, could talk about bioethics all day, all day with you. Um, but, you know, we're actually in the trenches sitting here, hand in hand, how does this work? And it's... And you're helping people without regard to their uh, political beliefs, without regard to their race or their age or their socioeconomic status or their politics. You're just trying to save lives. Absolutely. Tell us about the Tinsley Lewis case, because I think that's a really important breakthrough here. Yes. Um, So the Tinsley Lewis case, um, she was nine months old when the hospital started the 10-day process on her. And we actually um, became involved on day nine of her day 10 countdown. And on the day 10, we were, which was a Sunday, we were able to miraculously, which is just a story of its own, um, were able to to secure a temporary restraining order um, that was signed by a judge, Alex Kim, up in uh, from Tarrant County. And she, the hospital, it, it caught waves because here's this innocent little baby and the hospital is 
um, trying to pull the plug and also her blood pressure medicine. So it's also so let, let me interrupt. What uh, She's an African-American baby. Yes. What was the diagnosis of hers? Um, she had uh, problems with her lungs, chronic lung disease and um, Epstein's anomaly for her heart in her in her heart. And, um, you know, the 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 chronic lung disease um are are other other people who have uh addressed her and looked at and, and uh reviewed her records or seen her in person treated her over time that has gotten better and so that's this one aspect of of showing how how children's bodies react and how they need time and to be given the benefit of the doubt um and so her case started in 2019 and um we are now you know kind of it, there were several appeals, um, and, and the end result is that Tinsley Lewis is still um, at. She's still alive. Um, she is in medically in a in a much better spot than she was uh, when the hospital tried to uh, impose the ten day law on her. We've got a constitutional challenge going on uh, as, as part of this as part of this lawsuit. She's been moved out of the ICU, the car, the cardiac ICU. Um, and she's into a transitional care program with the goal of getting her home. And that's what we're currently working on right now. Um, but it's been, um, it's taken a lot of, uh, legal activity in order to achieve that result. So you got a temporary restraining order, the mm -hmm. hospital appealed, uh, they, did they win the appeal or lose the appeal? So we, we, we received a temporary restraining order, um, and that was kind of, I think I have to remember, it was, about a, it was extended for about a month, whatever the, the maximum amount was. Uh, that was sorry, it was the beginning of mid-November, and then um, early December of that year of 2019 is when we had the temporary injunction hearing. Now, we lost the temporary injunction hearing. Um, we appealed immediately, had an appeal ready to go um, to the Fort Worth Court of Appeals, and they stayed the temporary injunction, uh, the denial of the temporary injunctions, which means that the hospital could not remove, even though they won at the trial court level, they could not remove life support until after the, uh, un until the court of appeals had, uh, ruled on, on our request, um, for, on, on our request. And so we, that took, we had oral arguments in February in front of the Fort Worth Court of Appeals of 2020. And then in July of 2020 is when the Court of Appeals issued their opinion. And we won big time. I mean, it was a complete, uh, not only just for Tinsley, Tinsley's case, but a complete repudiation of the law on constitutional grounds. On constitutional grounds. And mm -hmm. then they, they took it to the uh, Supreme Court and the Supreme Court refused to take the case. Is that right? Correct. So the other, so the hospital appealed um, a petition for review at the Texas Supreme Court, and they denied. And that denial happened, oh, probably early 2021, uh, if I'm a little bit mistaken. We should have had. Um, so then we went. We were back in the trial court and had a scheduling order in place, and we should have gone to trial January of 2022. Our trial date was like January 26, 2022. About November 2021. Um, both sides entered into an, uh, an agreed motion to stay, uh, to, uh, to, to stay judgment. So what that means is we kind of, uh, the hospital and us, hospital and us came together and said, we're not going to pursue trial for the next four months and let's focus on getting her out. So, um, of course we welcomed that suggestion. Uh, that's absolutely what the end goal is. And so of course we agreed to that. And, um, and so, so, so now she's, she's improving, 
And I think it's important to understand, doctors said she had weeks to live two and a half years ago. That That's a great point, Wesley. So uh, the definition of terminal uh, is usually you have a per, you have a so you have a disease, a chronic condition that you will that death is expected within six months. Okay, terminal. The word terminal is not actually in this section of law. It is right. not a character. Some people. It is earlier in dealing with some earlier provisions, um, and so some people, especially supporters of the law, like to say that it can only be. Uh, applied to terminal. I argue it's not because it's the word terminal is intentionally used in other sections um, uh, of of this act. But when it comes to this process and the 10 day process and um, changing decision makers, it, it does not say terminal. And so regardless, they had testified in the December temporary injunction hearing in 2019 that even with the provision of life sustaining treatment, she was terminal. So if we give her all the treatment that she's currently receiving, she will die within six months. That didn't happen. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I, I think it makes actually more sense logically that it wouldn't be limited to the terminally ill because this is a quality of life judgment, a quality of life ethic that says, you know, that certain lives are just so full, filled with suffering they're not worth living. And somebody who's not terminally ill with a serious condition that can cause pain or cause suffering may actually have a greater sense of, oh my gosh, this quality of life is is difficult for a longer period than somebody who is terminally ill. In the same way, in my view, um, without getting into assisted suicide, but the idea that assisted suicide will be limited to the terminally ill is ridiculous because the whole idea of assisted suicide is to eliminate suffering. And there are a lot of people who suffer far more uh, acutely and for a longer period than people who are dying. So it's the same factor there. My very first ethics committee meeting to go solo with when I was with Texas Rights Life, um, it was in DFW. She was So I was fresh out of law school, I was 27 maybe, 26, 27. Um, and the patient was about 24, 25. She was around my age. And um, she was the subject of a 10-day countdown. We I went to that. This was in a case where we got, we were able to get, the mom got the extension it to, because the doctor who called for it was going to be on vacation so it's like why are we having the doctor who says we need to remove brianna's uh ventilator support and he's going to be on vacation no he should be here we're going to have this discussion so we got so we had a little bit more time um in in that case but when we get the, when we get there um first of all she the doctor uh, it, it became very clear that he had not treated her for a while and at this point, it was probably like three weeks, three or four weeks. And, and I noticed that her ventilator settings were pretty low, what we call the weanable stages. And I asked, well, okay, first of all, correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't this percentage, isn't she in the weanable stages? Or is there something else preventing her from, from weaning trials? And he, he, they all agreed, no, she's in within weanable stages. And I said, okay, so then why are we... Uh, why are we not talking about a weaning plan? Why are we here talking about prematurely removing our ventilator? So, so let me interrupt because some oh, of sure. us are not medical. <laughs> weaning means over a period of time, you try to slowly remove the ventilator, right? Correct. As opposed to quote unquote in the vernacular, pulling the plug where it's a sudden process where the body might not be able to acclimate. Whereas in weaning over a period of time, the body can take over. Is that what we're talking about? Yes, you are. Yes. Thank you for that clarification. And 
and so when I asked that, why are we not working on weaning her? And his response was, <laughs> the doctor's response was, well, who wants to live with MS? She had multiple sclerosis, I see. Turned out she had Lyme disease later, a few years yeah. later. Like, it was a misdiagnosis to begin with, um, which I've learned is quite common now. But we just, her mom and stepdad said, uh, that's her parents' decision to make, right? Like, not. So here we get, uh, this is a <laughs> discrimination based on disability uh, attitude. And also another circumstance where if the doctor had had the doctor's way, the patient would have died, and you just said she's still with us, correct? Um, she. This was about 2015, 2016, and she just passed away last fall. So right, she lived so another five or six years. Five or six uh, years. And mm-hmm. that five or six years was hers to live, not yep. the doctor's to take from her. Amen. So um, let's move on to some other issues, but I, I take sure. it um, we're, you're about to have the Texas legislature meets once every two years part-time. Uh, I could <laughs> let editorialize. I wish all states did that, but it also has a problem because if you can't get something done over the couple of month period uh, that uh, the, it's in session, it's a two-year wait. Uh, you guys are going to make another run at Texas. Uh, is it this year or next year? It's in 2023, but yes. And so our educational component starts in the fall. Um, in once the prime, once the primaries are over, and we know have a good idea of okay, who's actually going to be at the table. Um, which our primaries are here in just in in, in a week. Primaries and then runoffs in May. Um, but in the fall is when you start meeting with legislators and staff, and um, really having you know. E- you have, you do a lot of work before the legislative session begins, so you sure. hit the ground running. But I yes. think I think a lot of people who aren't engaged in this kind of activity are not aware of the depth of effort that goes into things, often behind the scenes and right. without any right. news coverage and that kind of thing. And of course, just again, full disclosure, I have in the past testified um, in favor of repealing this uh, feudal care law in the uh, Texas. Uh, uh, legislature and and I of course wish you well because I'm on your side on this one. Let's let's move from feudal care, um, which I think we've uh, explored pretty well. There's something else in the news about Texas, which uh, I have not really engaged, but you passed and I think Texas Right to Life was instrumental in oh, wow. passing what is known as the Texas Heartbeat Abortion Law. Tell us about that. Yes. So the Texas Heartbeat Act uh, prevents abortion, prohibits abortion once um, a fetal heartbeat can be detected. So it's kind of mistaken to say that it's a six, a six week ban or an eight week ban. No, it's it's when fetal heartbeat is detected. And so usually, yes, that can be detected around six to eight weeks when you see um, that's that's when you uh, can can detect that heartbeat. And and, um, that's where some you'll see the headline six to eight week ban. But that's not exactly what the law says. But what's unique about the law is that unlike other pro-life laws that get struck down in court, um, that get enjoined in court, this prevents the government from enforcing the heartbeat. The genius behind the heartbeat act is that it prevents, um, the government from enforcing it and relies on private civil enforcement. It's a, it's a deterrent effect. Um, it also gets around constitutional issues, um, that are, that are present in, other sorts of other types of pro-life laws that end up never going into effect. So it was, com- it, it's amazing. The law has been actually in effect since September 1st. It's the first significant pro-life legislation um, since Roe that has a, been allowed to go into effect. To, let's, to, to change that, um, 
to, to explain, there there were some pro-life laws that took so long to get through the court system that they actually only became effective of, that they were passed in, I think, 2015 or 2017, and they just became effective a f- few days before the Texas Heartbeat Act did. But Texas Heartbeat took effect on September 1. Um, we Numbers just came out. We see that there's a 50% decrease in abortions since that time period in Texas. So what that tells us is that, A, the Heartbeat Act is working to save lives, to save uh, pregnant women from do, making a, a, a choice that is um, that they, they can't undo and harming families and, and protecting children. Um, but it also does show us that there's there's still more work to be done before we completely abolish abortion um, in uh, in the state of Texas. Um, but we you know could not be more pleased with um, that. It, there's been significant legal hur- hurdles that have, have come. The text, the United States Supreme Court, you know they they have been. Uh, they've ruled, you know, I would say in favor, they've been very procedural. The merits haven't reached it yet, but procedurally, uh, they're, they're kind of saying, look, this seems weird to us, but we don't really have a way to stop you. So, okay. You know, All right. So, so let's, let's get a little bit into the technicalities here. Sure. First, let's say you, a heartbeat in a, in a fetus can be detected, generally speaking, six to eight weeks, uh, at which point Texas outlaws abortion. Uh, is there are there any exceptions to that? No. So even for the life of the mother, quote unquote. So there there is um it, there there is a definition for uh, if the mother's life is uh it, it's a pretty strong it's a strong definition that that's inherent in all the rest of our it mirrors the life of the mother exceptions for the rest of our pro life laws in Texas like the twenty week ban um but it does not include kind of the you know what the Supreme court had sanctioned in uh, Dovey Bolton of, of mental health or anything. Right. That's uh, health of the mother. Like um, and it, that, there's no exception for rape, incest, this kind of thing. Correct. So normally this would appear to uh, violate the terms of Roe v. Wade and, and the Casey decision uh, without getting into all the technical legalities um, because it, it would actually come so early in the pregnancy. But, because the state is not enforcing this, but private citizens bringing lawsuits, mm-hmm. then there's a procedural issue that the Supreme Court has not des- has decided will say not to overturn the law as as the uh, matter proceeds through trial. You talked about private enforcement. This explain what you mean by that. Sure. And it's important to note that um, the lawsuits are not against the women seeking w- women seeking abortions. It's against the abortionist um, performing. They can be uh, held liable up to ten thousand dollars civil fine um, for any illegal abortions that they perform. And a civil that, fine, but you're saying damages that a person would bring a lawsuit saying this doctor performed an abortion and we're suing them for ten thousand dollars. Correct. It's an economic incentive, it's a disincentive for abortionists um, to not perform illegal abortions uh, in violation of the law. You you created a civil right of action as opposed to a criminal enforcement uh, type of circumstance. Uh, I want to I want to get into that because uh, you were not the first Texas right to life to come up with that concept. That concept was actually introduced years ago in California around environmental laws, a certain environmental laws in California, where a private citizen who believes that, uh, I believe it's Proposition 65, but if you don't uh, list the potential carcinogens, uh, for example, on, an, on a gasoline pump, 
that the uh, the a private citizen can actually bring litigation about that in terms of private enforcement. The government can too, but so can private citizens. Also, nature rights proposals and laws and several ordinances, which try to give, and we're not going to get into that here, but give rights, human type rights to nature. Uh, civil private enforcement is the mechanism where anyone who believes that nature's uh, rights to exist and persist, as it's often called, can bring a lawsuit to stop the use of nature that supposedly violates its rights. So this is something that um, I've seen a lot of screaming about in the New York Times and and in uh, uh, newspapers and among pundits who are not pro-life, but it's not unique to Texas. And it's not, in, it's not unique in Texas. We provide the same kind of private civil enforcement for uh, Medicaid fraud, Medicaid uh, uh, enforcement of Medicaid fraud um, also under our state. Oh, I didn't know that. Tell me just a little bit about that. I wasn't aware of that. Um, so they're called uh, Ketom lawsuits, but a private citizen in conjunction with the AG's office, but they can bring a lawsuit, um, a whistleblower lawsuit for Medicaid fraud. I worked in the um, OAG's office as a law clerk, and um, uh, we, we did that a lot with... Um, dental. When I was there, it was these kind of pop-up dental, um, pop-up dental shops, um, all around who were just harming patients and bilk and Medicaid. And it would be a whistleblower from, you know, their, their staff who, um, then they also would share in the recovery too. So it's not yeah, so, so this is not something that has just been invented. Although I think that in this case, because you're not engaging also with the attorney general or with law enforcement, and it is just a civil right of action, I think that might be a little bit different. Are you concerned that if, if you know, you succeed, and obviously you want to succeed, that this could actually, this kind of approach could spread to things like gun control? I know the governor of California has threatened to, to enact a, a bill or has proposed a bill along those lines, and perhaps other areas of, of intense cultural controversy so that the courts will kind of be diverted from doing what they normally do to kind of fighting over these cultural issues. Does that cause you concern? So we, we've heard that criticism. In the context of the California aspect, first of all, what Newsom was trying to do is already illegal there. So it's not something new. But also, you've got the difference between Second Amendment rights that are clearly laid out in our Constitution, in our Bill of Rights, versus this completely made up, you can't actually find it anywhere, right to unfettered abortion through all 40 weeks of pregnancy. So I think there's a de- a definitely um, a difference when you're looking at uh, you can't just you can't just invade constitutional rights. No, you can't do that. But at the bedrock of of the abortion issue is there that that is not there. That like where you it's right. completely comparing apples to oranges. So so from a per, pro life perspective, uh, the Second Amendment is is enumerated, and the uh, right to abortion that was created initially in Roe v. Wade is unenumerated, and you don't believe it is actually uh, valid constitutional uh, jurisprudence. Correct. Correct. And obviously the goal of pro-lifers is to do away with all abortion if they can. Yes. And there's no secret about that, why (laughs) you're called pro-life. So let's just finish with this Texas law because we're almost out of time. Um, So the the law was put in. It has been able to remain in effect uh, because the, uh, the Supreme Court has refused to enjoin it. State State courts have not enjoined it. It is currently, uh, um, you said, uh, 
dissuading about 50% of the abortions in Texas yeah, so is, far? So it is, um, it, it, it's resulting in a 50% decrease, which means, which mean can be interpreted that there are 50% of abortions that are occurring before heartbeats. Uh, um, I was going to say it could be a chemical abortion. Correct. Correct. So that is definitely, um, that's definitely the next fight. Um, I mean, we're are, are already fighting kind of abortion by mail and different things like that. Um, so, so, so that's one, that's one interpretation. Um, and then the, the, the other side of um, the heartbeat, we, I wanted to say it, it's been enjoined. Um, the heartbeat act's been enjoined against Texas right to life specifically. So we were sued 14 times because they were, um, the abortion industry was um, losing in federal court against the government. They, their kind of plan C, which is now the only plan they have left is um, trying to sue uh, people to stop people private citizens from enforcing it. So that was their game plan, but behind suing Texas right to life uh, as an entity, all of our employees and, um, this, and specifically our legislative director from bringing any lawsuits against Planned Parenthood, the Lilith fund, um, that, um, different, the Frontera fund, different regional abortion, uh, organizations who provide financial assistance to people who are women who are seeking abortions, um, to, to try to muzzle us, um, to, you know, they said in court, Planned Parenthood said that Texas right to life is the, uh, uh, it, it, the biggest threat to their bottom line because they think that we'll continue. If we're not enjoined, we will be the ones to sue, um, to sue. And so that's right now we're, we're arguing that on first amendment grounds. It's in front of the third court of appeals right now. Were you um, enjoined? That- were you enjoined? Yes, we were. So, mm-hmm. and now you're appealing. Correct. So, in Texas, if you're affiliated with Texas Right to Life, you cannot sue. But if you're a private citizen who's not a- affiliated with Texas yes. Right to Life or any, are there other pro life groups that are caught up yep. in that? Just so, us. Just you. Mm-hmm. Well, that shows you they're afraid of you. <laughs> it, but, it is. And we're trying to, we try to keep, especially when it was first in the news a lot. And, and the point of suing us and getting, I mean, they were, it was over again, over Labor Day weekend. Um, and they were just the, in a Travis County, which here's Austin. People are more familiar with Austin. And so those judges were just handing out temporary restraining orders like candy. And, um, and so we were very careful in our messaging to try to, to uh, part of it was creating confusion. They wanted to create confusion in, in the general populace about whether the heartbeat law was still in effect. And so we were trying to, we tried to be very intentional in our messaging um, to supporters and to the public at large that nope, the law, it, it's just, it, these losses are just affecting us. It's not affecting you. It's not affecting the heart, the, the heartbeat law as a whole. It's just affecting Texas rights to life. So have there been any lawsuits filed uh, against there- a, a, a people who committed who, who performed abortions or and I, I understand it that if somebody participates for example in driving somebody to get an abortion that they can be sued mm-hmm. too um, have there been lawsuits filed yes I think there's been three in federal court and um, they were filed by people out of the the braid so dr braid who kind of was like they when no one was suing them they were trying to gate people to abate people to sue um to sue them he penned an op-ed in the san antonio express news maybe that said this was probably yeah it was september or october of last year saying hey i just performed an abortion uh, after six weeks okay 
Well, he stopped short of saying they were trying to bait them into a law, bait someone into a lawsuit. And there was a couple people who on their own sued. And so those kind of those are those are um, ongoing. We did not, um, you know, support that effort because it um, he was very careful. The op-ed never said invite a baby with I performed an abortion on a baby with a heartbeat. So, yeah, he might have performed a six week abortion. The baby might not have had a heartbeat. Yeah. You know, and then you, so that. And the idea was to get the lawsuit so that the lawsuit could either lose or, or be enjoined. Right, because that's 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 what the Supreme this pre enforcement challenges were failing, and um, that's what the, the all the courts were saying. You know, you've got to have a a party who is you know we got you got to have the right parties on each side, and the government's over here saying, hey, they sued us, but we're not the right party because it says right here in black and white, hey. The government has no business here. The government can't bring an action under this statute. And so you're left with not having the right party. And they were trying to bait someone into come into suing so that they could have a dispute between two private, in between an abortionist and right. um, a private citizen. And, and are those, is that litigation still pending? It is. Um, I can't, there was some movement last week and I'm sorry. I don't, I saw it's right. emails. That it's still, it's still, uh, Hanging in there, and um, I the think future, they're on motion for summary judgment. I think, and the future of the law. Then, but if they win on summary judgment, let's say the the abortion provider wins on summary judgment, that doesn't invalidate the law. Correct. So anyway, so that's still going, and then of course we're not going to get into this today. The Dobbs case, which is the Mississippi fifteen week right. uh, rule, um, uh, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, and you know we don't know whether it will be or not. Do you think that will affect the Texas law? Um, in a positive way. I think the, I mean, we've already seen where the abortion industry said they're packing up and leaving Texas. So I think that will just give more um, confidence to other states to mirror uh, Texas's law. And it, I mean, and then, you know, Mississippi's is a little bit, Mississippi's is different, um, but we'll just have to see what the Supreme Court does. But I hope they have the, um, you know, this is, this is the right time. This is the, uh, right question before the court and uh, it is it's time so the pro-life movement is uh, seeking de- uh, deeply to uh, prevent abortion in the United States if a role gets overturned it is returned to the states in terms of uh, different states may have different approaches to that mm-hmm. issue um, and uh, that will not mean the end of Texas right to life though correct no sir it won't I mean we will have uh, just like with anything, there'll still be illegal abortions. There'll still be uh, women who um, need help and we will be there to help them. And then we've got the fight um, as far fight um, for fetal, fetal care against fetal care and saving vulnerable patients. Those, um, those culture wars are not going away. Well, thank you for uh, coming on and, and um, explaining some of these issues that I think most people don't think too deeply about because Often the media doesn't cover them in a truly complete way in terms of, for example, what is involved in the feudal care uh, bills. And, of course, the media has been very hostile with regard to the Texas heartbeat law. And uh, I always like to get I, – I have people on the show who are both agree with me and who disagree with me. I like to get all perspectives out there. And I really appreciate you letting people understand where Texas right to life is coming from and the work you're trying to accomplish. Well, thank you for giving us the opportunity.
Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work, speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos, with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.